Welcome to the Essay for FAs podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors and active investors, including retirement planning, asset allocation, and the economy. I am your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today it is my distinct pleasure to welcome Dan Silverman, professor of economics at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Among his many areas of expertise, Dan is an authority on financial decision-making, annuitization decisions, and retirement healthcare considerations. I'm going to start at the most basic level, and then we could drill down to, into areas that have occupied your research. So Dan, first, why would it be that two similarly situated people would have different financial outcomes? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Of course, it's a sort of central question for a lot of economics. The traditional economic approach has given three reasons for that, I would say. Three reasons why two people who seem to have the same opportunities would end up in, with different financial outcomes. Mm-hmm. The, the first would be really those opportunities, the, what we would call constraints. Some people simply earn more income. Some people, you know, have greater ability to earn that income. Some people, you know, inherit wealth from their parents, something like that. So simple uh, opportunities or constraints can be the first reason why people end up in different places in, in their economic lives. The second fundamental reason in a traditional view would be that people have different preferences. In other words, they seek different things from life. Some people really might be strongly attached to, you know, certain forms of consumption like housing or, you know, cars, clothes. Other people might be, you know, more strongly attached to leisure, you know, things like, uh, you know, vacations or trips, uh, you know, to museums and so, and so forth. And yet others might, you know, have this really strong uh, attachment to the accumulation of wealth in some way. So, so a, a form of insurance they may not want to consume, but maybe, you know, concerned, very concerned about the event where they have not enough money to, to spend on what they really need. The third major uh, component that we tend to attribute different outcomes to in standard economics would be luck. So some people simply have good fortune and others not. One really good example that has been studied a lot recently is just, were you fortunate enough to be born during a good economic time or a bad one? Or were you fortunate enough to graduate college and enter the labor force at a good economic time or a bad one? It seems like these events can have actually lasting impacts on people's lives. And it's just obviously due to luck. It's not, it's not that one can control when one was born. There's been a lot of discussion of that in respect to uh, the last financial crisis and the people who graduated university at that time. That's right. And I think there's really pretty strong evidence to indicate that it's hard uh, to get yourself back up the wage ladder to, you know, to, to be where you would be on average if you enter the labor market during a bad time. Now let's get specifically into retirement. Retirement research found that people don't draw down their wealth to the extent one would expect. How would you explain this so-called retirement saving puzzle? This is a really lively area of research right now. And I think it's been appreciated for a while. In other words, we've had data on this topic for many years. Um, but I think we're only now making a lot of progress understanding what drives it. So just to put it in context, what you described is exactly right, that we have standard views of what savings is for, especially retirement savings. It's meant to be spent. You accumulate, you work hard uh, for a, a long career. You accumulate this nest egg. Of course, you're not going to spend it all at once as soon as you retire. You, we expect you to, to draw it down in a smooth way. But we do expect you to draw it down. We, we, you know, the standard model, and I think many pieces of standard advice in the financial, you know, services sector are to, you know, slowly perhaps, but definitely to draw down that principle, not just to live off of the interest or not even. And 
it seems from for many people, and this is not just a, a U.S. or a European phenomenon, it seems to be common around the world, but many older people who have a nest egg of some form often do not draw it down at all. And for many, it's actually rising in its principal value. So that's a surprise, you know, and of course, people have other sources of, of income in older ages, including pensions and Social Security, these kinds of reasons. But still, we would have expected, at least according to standard ideas, that they would be drawing down those assets as they age. And so we're trying to understand why, what drives that behavior. So for many years, I think a leading uh, theory has been the bequest motive. Yeah, we, we want to have wealth for ourselves to consume as we age, and that, that makes sense. But in addition, we'd like to leave a, a legacy, a, a bequest for our heirs. And so that could help explain why people are not spending down this wealth in their retirement. But uh, there's not great evidence across at least you know much of um, the wealth distribution for that a very strong bequest motive. So in, in the first place, you know, relatively small fractions, at least as we can observe in the data, relatively small fractions of people, at least in the United States, leave a bequest at all. And it's not just a measurement issue, which has it has it has been because most bequests aren't actually taxed, so it's hard to see them. But in addition, if you ask people, uh, did they, you know, are they planning to give a, a bequest? Or if you ask people who are, you know, around my age and ask, well, did you receive a bequest? Many of us don't. That plus the fact that a lot of folks who don't have heirs, at least don't name them, also tend to exhibit this behavior of not spending down their wealth in retirement. You said that there's only a small percentage of people who are leaving bequests, yet we've also said that the people aren't spending down their retirement assets. Where's the money going? Yeah, right. So that's, I think, this, this incredible puzzle. And, you know, is this just a, you know, an issue of measurement? You know, do we just not see the bequests properly? Are people not reporting them properly? I think many older people would be able to answer this question immediately, which is they're spending a lot of their wealth, not as they age, but, you know, very near the end of life. So at least in the United States, but and it exists to some extent in other countries as well, there is enormous risk at, at near the end of life of uninsured long-term care expenditure. So this can be, you know, not, this is not necessarily relevant for very wealthy people, but for the sort of mass affluent type, this can be a really major expense on the order of, you know, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in long-term care. And it can, I think, not just be the realization of that, but simply the risk so that it can be that you end up having to spend, you know, half a million dollars on long-term care for several years of highly trained and highly sort of intense forms of care as people lose their ability to perform what's called activities of daily living. So bathing, you know, cooking, simple housekeeping and, and getting in and out of bed. When people lose their ability to do that, it's very expensive to provide the care uh, to do that for them. This, I think, is, at least in the United States, the leading uh, theory for why people are tending to accumulate wealth, uh, not spend it, not leave it as a bequest, but only spend it very near the end of life. There's another conundrum that occupies um, retirement researchers, and that's called the annuity puzzle. The annuity puzzle basically says that according to economic theory, people should love annuities, yet according to economic reality, people seem to hate them. That is to say, they don't buy them. Could you explain this one? Yeah, so this is actually, at least in our view, and this is based on a paper that I wrote with John Leitner and Dmitry Stolyarov, former colleagues at the University of Michigan. In our view, that the phenomena are related. This fact that people aren't spending down their wealth perhaps until the end of their lives and the, the need to spend it on long-term care is potentially related to their lack of demand for additional annuitization. I mentioned an additional annuitization because let's 
be clearer, a lot of people do have partial annuitization, especially in the form of Social Security. And by annuitization, of course, we mean insurance against outliving your assets. So, you know, what's the beauty of an annuity? I think it comes from this idea that I will have a steady and secure form of income, even if I exhaust my wealth. So that's an enormously valuable thing for people who are entering, especially very old age. The downside is that it's relatively illiquid, although there have been some important innovations and you can't leave it as a bequest to heirs, except in uh, circumstances like your, if you arrange to have it uh, extend to your spouse after your death. So this illiquidity uh, can create a problem if you have very large expenses at some point in, in older ages. So in the example that I gave with, uh, with long-term care expenditure and long-term care risk, uh, an annuity can be, at least in its simple form, relatively unattractive because you say, look, I love this guarantee of a, a long stream of income. That's really great for me. But what if I need to bring a lot of that money backward in time, not extend it into my 80s or 90s, but instead I need to use it at relatively young, let's say my late 70s, because I need long-term care, say, for dementia or something like that. Then the annuity becomes much less attractive. In that sense, the two phenomena are related. This tendency to what looks like self-insure against long-term care risk and the lack of desire for a lot of annuitization can be connected to the same problem, that it can be difficult to liquidate uh, an annuity um, in the case that you actually need it for long-term care expenditure. And as you may know, Gil, I think that's where an area of really important innovation has occurred in the annuity market, that people have now come to understand that, that difficulty and have developed new products precisely with that idea in mind. So these are contingent contracts so that as soon as you lose a lot of ability to perform activities of daily living, then the contract you know, is triggered and you can receive a lot of that annuity income uh, all at once to help pay for uh, long-term care expenditure. There's another one which we don't deal with in that paper, which I think is also extremely important and, and I think relates to many other forms of insurance as well. And that's what some people like to call the get hit by the bus problem, which is not a very nice way of putting it. You may not live longer than you expected. So you may end up paying for something, in this case an annuity, that doesn't pay off very well. You instead get hit by a bus or you're, uh, you take that amazing skydiving trip and something doesn't work. So you end up not living much longer and you've paid for something that you don't benefit from. And again, I think the financial industry has innovated in ways to help deal with that by offering guarantees and degrees to which the annuity can be bequeathed to heirs in the event that you die very young or much before anticipated. So this is one of the ways in which annuities might become less hated. And I'm going to offer another one, which flows from your research. And that is, and please tell me if I've gotten this wrong, but paradoxically, partial annuitization may help retirees who harbor aspirations of bequeathing their wealth. So when people are rich in income, they actually save in retirement and end up with higher bequeathable assets. Did I get that right? Yeah, that certainly can be the case. And that's it's what they're doing in our research, in, in, in our theory, is trying to save themselves out of these circumstances where they have to rely only on annuity income. So what you're worried about in our model is, look, you're, you're sort of a high income, a relatively high spending person. And your level of annuitization is such that, well, you know, if it comes down to it and you need that annuity, you know, income alone uh, to say, you know, pay for long-term care expenditures or simply to, to pay for expenditures late in life, you're not thrilled with that. It's just sort of not enough. And so as a result, you want to save yourself out of that conundrum to save yourself out of that lower level of expenditure than what you're used to. And you end up accumulating more and more of bequeathable wealth up until a point at which you're satisfied with the balance. 
But that's right. That's sort of the part of the, the explanation that we're offering for this partial annuitization is say, well, okay, that's why people are trying to save themselves out of this. They're just used to a higher level of expenditure and they don't want to rely on this relatively modest level of annuity, annuity income at the end of their lives. So they're going to save themselves out of that problem and postpone, at least for a long time, the necessity of relying only on annuity income at the end of their life. One of the areas you've looked at focuses on transitions from good health to poor health and from poor health to death. How should listeners think about health and their finances broadly? For many older people, you know, in retirement, health looms large, especially in the United States where, you know, families tend to live further apart from each other than they used to so that care from your, your relatives is, is less reliable. And for many people, uh, Medicaid, you know, which is government provided health insurance, you know, does provide long-term care, but only for people who have very uh, low income and low wealth. So it's not a desirable position to be in for many people. And another piece of this, which is really challenging for researchers to get a handle on, is what would you like your spending patterns to look like once you arrive in poor health and older ages? You know, is this something where you expect to slow down and really spend on, on uh, very little uh, outside the home and really focus on, on your own health and on taking care of yourself? Or is this a time when actually additional expenditure is going to be crucial to pay for the state, you know, care in your home, for skilled nursing, and for eventually perhaps a, a nursing home that you feel comfortable in? And I think the jury is in some sense still out in trying to understand exactly the nature of expenditure that people take on once they arrive at relatively poor health. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about hospital bills, which tend to be insured. This is not, you know, receiving a stent, you know, for heart problems or some forms of cancer screening or cancer treatment, nothing like that, which tends to be insured. What I'm talking about is skilled nursing and in-home care or eventually nursing home care, which tends not to be insured. And that raises this other, you know, related question, which is why don't people have long-term care insurance? And they certainly do not. <laughs> uh, there's In the United States, it's very, very rare and actually mostly accumulated, I think, by, by relatively high-income, high-wealth people. We're still trying to understand you know, what drives the lack of demand for long-term care insurance, which is, uh, I think, as you, you, know, you might guess from this conversation, closely related to the demand for annuities and for wealth and retirement uh, in itself. I wanted to touch on an area of public policy, something I've seen from your research. You made an interesting observation that the Fed has lowered interest rates to save the economy in some sense, yet doing so disincentivizes saving. And the result of that is that more people end up receiving public assistance, which of course would be very bad for the economy. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So this is uh, related to our earlier discussion, where if you think of people higher income people, not very rich, but sort of, you know, not not very poor either, as trying, especially later in life, to accumulate assets, again, to postpone the need to rely on government aid at the end of their life and have to use a Medicaid-sponsored uh, nursing home if, if, if required. So, you know, imagine yourself, you know, living off of uh, Social Security and the returns on your, your assets in retirement. And doing so, and then, of course, being very careful with your money as you try not to overspend and, and maintain this, this cushion against the eventuality that you would actually need to rely on Medicaid to, to pay for long-term care. But, you know, as you make those kinds of decisions, you have a problem, which is if you put your savings into higher risk and therefore higher return assets, that's great. You, you can sort of cushion yourself better by accumulating more wealth. But of course, higher risk means the eventuality that you may arrive at a point when you really need that money and it's not where, where you wanted it to be. The returns were too low. And so the natural concern would lead you then to invest in relatively safe assets. But if those relatively safe assets are, are being 
paid very low returns in part due to uh, government policy, then you may, at least in our theory, uh, quote unquote, give up and stop trying to save your way uh, out of uh, reliance on, on federal aid at the end of your life and instead just anticipate it. Pushing interest rates lower could lead folks, especially older folks uh, who are, you know, especially risk averse and with modest levels of income to give up on their efforts to self-insure against long-term care risk and instead just uh, rely more and more on Medicaid. And thus, these policies can have really important fiscal uh, consequences, which we have, we'll see down the road. Because as you may know, Medicaid is one of these very large, uh, very fast growing federal programs, you know, measured not in millions, of course, or hundreds of millions, but in billions of dollars. Do people improve their financial welfare by relying on financial advisors? Does that lead to better outcomes for people? I think it certainly can. And I think we've talked about, you know, many of these innovations that I think have come from interactions between real life financial you know, challenges, especially late in life, and financial advisors who see the need for innovations like these uh, annuities with long-term care provisions, with annuities with guarantees, with annu- you know, annuities with deferred income. Unfortunately, you know, many people do not seek financial advice, and it's not really clear why. You know, whether people just rely on friends or family to, to make these decisions, whether they feel intimidated or un- unsure about where to get the good advice. And of course, there are always these concerns that, uh, you know, that advisors don't have the best interest of, of their clients in mind, that they're really just trying to sell you something. And I think, uh, you know, from my understanding, the financial uh, services industry and financial advisors have been working very hard to overcome these misperceptions. And I, and in my view, have been making really important advances in the products and the forms of advice and the tech technology available for giving everyday uh, investors and uh, and especially retirees good advice. And I think in many ways, it's it's a shame that, that more people don't pursue it it's, and instead sort of rely on their own capacities and, you know, the, the advice of friends and family to, to make do. And unfortunately, there's a lot of complication in modern financial decision making. There's just enormous amounts of decisions with fairly substantial consequences that people like you and I will have to make that our grandparents didn't. The, the world is a much more complicated place and it's good. We have more income and, and, and more opportunities in that way, but it's also much more complicated and therefore much more demanding on the typical person to have to make good decisions. Big decisions and large consequences. To end this interview as we began it, could you perhaps offer an anecdote as to how some flesh and blood person that you know has enjoyed a better financial outcome because of a more thoughtful decision-making process? Yeah, I can think of my parents who have received, I think, outstanding financial advice from a professional. And they are uh, fortunately professional warriors, at least one of them is, I you can guess who she is. Uh, so as a professional warrior, you know, my mom has lots of concern. And even though her son is an economist, I think she's reluctant to rely on me, which I think makes sense. I'm not expert in all things. And I, I think through a really good financial planner, she and my dad have arrived at a plan that they feel comfortable with. They feel, you know, safe and secure in, 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 in their assets and their abilities to pay for long-term care, their ability to, you know, support their grandchildren and so on. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it gives people a peace of mind that I think they're very happy to have. And, and it's, you know, it's a form of 
support and a, and a way of, you know, just really, I think, discussing these uncertainties that arrive late in life and to give a form of solace that in, a, in a time that I think is can be extremely challenging during which many things you haven't encountered before come up. And it's the financial advisor who has seen many of these circumstances before and can help guide people through it. it it's a great source of peace of mind, both for them and for me as someone who, you know, you could worry about your parents and if they're arranging their financial lives in a, in a positive way. And I think in this case, they've had a great uh, outcome. Arizona State University professor Dan Silverman, this has been a fascinating interview. I can tell you that I've actually learned things I really didn't know about before, which is not uh, not always the case. Thanks very much, Gil. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening. You can contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com if you have feedback or requests. And make sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts. 